In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Bambi. HR managers ain't cheap. Their salaries average $70,000 a year. Just go to Bambi.com slash gold to schedule your free HR audit. The podcast is also sponsored by Indeed. Indeed partners with you every step of the way in the hiring process so you can find talent with the skills that you need using tools like Indeed's instant match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com Peter. Well, both the Dow Jones and the S&P 500 hit new all-time record highs today, but I don't really want to talk about the overall market. I want to focus in on just a few highly speculative names that have had meteoric rises and in some cases crashes back down in the last couple of days, just as the latest evidence of the speculative fervor in this massive bubble. I mean, we've seen all kinds of indications of this with the meme stocks. We were going through stuff with GameStop and AMC and a host of other internet darlings that were pumped up by the Reddit Raiders. But what we're seeing today is just another indication of the casino-like nature of today's stock market that is completely the byproduct of artificially low interest rates, the inflation that the Federal Reserve and other central banks have created. Now, so far, 
These examples of speculative excesses have not marked the top in the market because as I just said, we're at new all-time highs now. So I don't know that this latest iteration of the speculative fever means that the markets have topped out, but it does provide additional evidence of the bubble-like nature of this market. And eventually it's going to come crashing down. If not now, sometime soon. And if it doesn't come crashing down, it's only because the dollar came crashing down instead. Of course, if we end up with hyperinflation, and I'll get to that topic a little later in the podcast, but if we go down that route, well, obviously nothing's going to come crashing down, at least not in nominal terms in dollars, but everything will crash even faster and further in terms of real money. So if we have hyperinflation, yes, these bubbles will implode, but you won't be able to see the implosion if your prism is the U.S. dollar, but it will be far more visible if you're looking at it through the lens of gold. But anyway, let me talk about some of these stocks. First, let me talk about a stock that everybody knows, and that is Tesla, which today even though it managed to close slightly down on the day, closed at 1,018 after making a all-time intraday high of $1,094.94. So that is the record high for Tesla. But even at today's close being, what, 8% or so off that high, the market cap on Tesla is still above $1 trillion. And that puts it in a select club because there are only four other stocks in the world that have market caps above a trillion dollars. And they're all in the United States. We obviously have the biggest bubble. And so we have the stocks that are in the trillion dollar club. Now, there was one other stock, Facebook, that briefly had a market cap above a trillion But investors have fallen out of love with Facebook due to some of the black eyes and fat lips that Facebook has now based on all of these allegations going on. So Facebook market cap is around 900 billion. So it's just out of that trillion dollar club. But Apple and Microsoft both have market caps above 2 trillion. Apple right now is slightly edging out Microsoft. I think it's about two and a half trillion, making it the most valuable company in the world based on the current market cap of its shares. Microsoft, a pretty close second, I think I checked, is about 2.3 trillion. Then Google, number three, it clocks in at about 1.8 trillion. And right on its tail is Amazon at 1.7. And then you got Tesla. Tesla now the fifth most valuable company, but the earnings of Tesla pale in comparison to the earnings of the other four companies. I mean, those companies have a lot of earnings. They trade at pretty high PEs, I don't know, 30, 40 times earnings, but there are a lot of earnings there. Sure, the multiples are high, but the multiples are high for all stocks. But Tesla's PE is out in space. I mean, maybe that's why Elon Musk wants to go to space so often. He wants to visit the PE of Tesla. But in any event, Tesla at just over $1 trillion is, again, the fifth company. But based on how many shares Elon Musk owns, he is now the wealthiest person in the world. He's got more money than Jeff Bezos. In fact, I think at one point this morning, his net worth was in excess of of 250 
billion dollars. So in other words, he was a quarter trillion dollar man. Now, a lot of people think that that makes him the richest person who ever lived. Not quite, because John D. Rockefeller still beats him out. I think adjusted for inflation, Rockefeller was worth about $400 billion. So it's possible that Musk could take him out. I mean, after all, all we need is to see Tesla double again. I mean, why not? I mean, double the current price makes as much sense as the current price. So what the hell, right? Why not? So it's very possible that Elon Musk will go on to be the richest man in the world. But all of this is on paper because I would say that John D. Rockefeller's fortune in Standard Oil had a lot more value in terms of what it was earning than Tesla. So if you want to judge wealth based on the actual earnings that your assets are generating, then Rockefeller was way richer than Musk. Musk's wealth is purely a function of the high valuation of his business, not the profitability of his business, but the pie in the sky valuation that today's investors are assigning to the prospect that at some point in the future, this company is going to deliver higher earnings. But none of this would be possible but for the monetary policy of the Fed. John D. Rockefeller achieved his $400 billion net worth, again, adjusted for inflation, under a gold standard. There was no Federal Reserve back then when John Rockefeller was running Standard Oil. So his net worth was far more legitimate and far more real than Elon Musk. And even if Elon Musk can somehow briefly pass him because the bubble gets bigger, the bubble is going to deflate, the air is going to come out, and there's no way that he is going to walk away from his Tesla stock, selling out, cashing out, and having anywhere near the wealth that J.D. Rockefeller had. But what I really want to talk about is not so much the paper fortune of Musk and the market cap of Tesla, but why the stock went up so much. Because the news that came out that sent the stock into the stratosphere was that Hertz Rent-A-Car had decided to order 100,000 cars from Tesla. Now, I have no idea how long it's going to take Tesla to produce these 100,000 cars and deliver them. I'm sure they're not going to get paid until the cars are in fact delivered. So they're not getting a check right up front. But the projected revenue from all of these 100,000 cars, however many years it takes Musk to deliver them, is $4 billion. That's the revenue. Now, how much profit does Elon Musk make per car? I'm not really sure. But even if he made 25% margin, which I doubt he does. I mean, that would be very, very generous to think that there is a billion dollars worth of profit on this $4 billion worth of revenue. I'm sure it's way less than that. But even if Tesla can somehow manage to make a billion dollars, the value of Tesla stock increased by over $100 billion on the news. Makes absolutely no sense. It went up by more than 20 times the added revenue of the deal, 100 times the added profit of the deal. Why is that sale so valuable to Tesla? Does the market just believe that everybody is going to give Tesla these kind of orders, like all the rental car companies? But even if they got all the rental car companies' orders, it still isn't going to be worth the increase in the market cap of the stock. 
This is just pure speculative frenzy. People are buying the stock. There was a catalyst. The stock was already at a record high following its latest earnings. And this was like throwing a match on a tinderbox. It just ignited. Maybe there were a bunch of shorts there that were forced to cover. But the point is the increase in the market cap of the stock bears absolutely no relationship to the news that caused the stock to go up. In fact, I think the increase in market cap yesterday alone on Monday exceeded the combined market caps of General Motors and Ford, right? Those are America's two other car companies. And Tesla increased its market cap by more than the combined value of both of those stocks in a single day on this one order. And again, I have no idea the timetable, how long it will take Tesla to deliver on these 100,000 cars, given all the problems in the supply chain and the problems with sourcing raw materials, who knows what the ability is and what kind of profit Tesla is going to ultimately end up making. Are they locking in a price? I mean, what is Hertz going to pay? Did they already agree on the price? Is Tesla exposed to potentially cost overruns? Maybe Tesla could end up losing money on this deal. Who knows? But you know what? I don't think anybody cares. It's buy now, ask questions later. But Tesla isn't even the craziest example of what's going on. First of all, I want to update listeners on a couple of other stocks that I talked about. One of them is the Digital World Acquisition Corp. That's Donald Trump's company. They came public through a SPAC. I talked about that on the last podcast. Nobody has any idea what the business model is going to be. As I said, you're buying a pig in a poke. You have no idea what they're going to do. You just know that it's Donald Trump and it's got something to do with social media. And so therefore, it's worth trillions and trillions of dollars, even though we have no idea if the business is going to make a profit. After all, Donald Trump has kind of like a checkered history. I mean, some of his things succeed. Some of his things go bankrupt. And so how do you know is digital world acquisition? Is that going to be like The Apprentice? Or is it going to be like one of his casinos in Atlantic City? Right? Who knows? But again, no one cares. It just had a sexy story. The stock got as high as 175. Now it's back down to 59. So think about that decline. It was down 30% today. I think the news was that they leaked something about the fact that their video streaming service would be a subscription-based service where people would have to pay, which is something that I hinted about on my last podcast because I thought they would have a hard time with an advertising model. And so they might have to get the viewers or listeners to actually pay. But the question is, are they willing to? There's already a lot of content out there. Are they willing to pay to get from Trump's company what a lot of other businesses are giving away for free? Who knows? Maybe investors are starting to ask some of those questions, which is why some of them ran for the hills. When you're running a small business, it's those HR issues that can kill you. You got wrongful termination lawsuits, discrimination, sexual harassment, minimum wage requirement, all sorts of labor regulations. And those HR managers' salaries ain't cheap. They average $70,000 a year. That's where Bambi comes in, spelled B-A-M, 
B-E-E. Bambi was created specifically to help small business owners. You get your own dedicated HR manager who will help you craft your HR policy and maintain your compliance and do it all for just $99 a month. And with Bambi, you can change HR from being one of your biggest liabilities to one of your biggest strengths. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat for anything from onboarding to termination. They will customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day to day. And they do it all for just $99 a month. Best part, it's month to month, no hidden fees, and you can cancel any time. So just go to Bambi.com slash gold right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash gold, spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash gold. Also, WeWork coming back down today, down 6.3%. It almost got to $15. Again, this company came public through a SPAC. You would have thought investors would have been smart enough not to bite on this one. After all, look at all of the baggage that WeWork is bringing to the table here. But still, people snapped it up anyway, and it had a pretty big run, and now it's finally cooling off. But the one that is the most ridiculous is this company called... Backit Holdings. Symbol is BKKT. Now, I never even heard of this company until yesterday. And so yesterday, it came out with some announcement that it had signed a deal with MasterCard. And the deal was going to somehow involve integrating cryptocurrencies using the MasterCard platform. I read something about how they would be helping maybe airlines integrate crypto into their frequent flyer loyalty program. So instead of getting mileage, maybe you got crypto or maybe you can use your points to buy crypto. I don't know. I mean, that doesn't seem like it's that valuable to me. The other aspect of this deal they talked about, or maybe it was in a press release or I read it, was that MasterCard was going to work on enabling merchants to transact in Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies on the platform, meaning that a customer could buy using his Bitcoin and through the MasterCard network, the merchant could receive Bitcoin in payment. So in other words, Bitcoin would be able to be used as a medium of exchange, as a method of payment, and potentially that the merchants would price products in Bitcoin. I don't know. But based on this news, you got this huge rally in the stock. So the stock closed on Friday at $9.15. It opened up at $13.86, right? A big gap up 40% or so on the news. And it went as high as $31.57. It closed at $30.60. That was like a 230% gain. Then in the after market, after hours trading, the stock was up in the 50s. People were paying over $50 a share. The market cap at that point was like $1.5 billion. I think it was between 100 200 billion on Friday. So all of a sudden the thing shot up to over one and a half trillion on nothing, on an announcement. No real details, no idea what the company might be able to earn as a result of this partnership. And the stock was gone ballistic. Now it ended up reversing. It did gap open today, not nearly as high as the 
after hours trading from yesterday, which is one of the reasons it's pretty dangerous to buy in the thinly traded after hours markets because there are some people that are long this stock at nosebleed levels, but it did gap up about six bucks, but it then tanked. It closed down 22% at 23.78. So a pretty significant one day reversal. It didn't take out yesterday's low. I mean, not even close, but it really was a blow off because it opened very high and then just collapsed throughout the entire day. So maybe the run in this stock is over and a lot more air is going to come out of it. But the point is, look how excited investors were. Nobody cared. These are not investors. You're just buying a ticker symbol. Nobody is doing any research. Nobody had time to do any research. They're just reacting to the price going up. Everybody wants to hop onto the bandwagon because they don't want to miss out. Now, obviously, a lot of people are going to be left holding the bag on a stock like this because they let their greed get the better of them. They didn't want to miss out, and so they rushed in, and now they bought a very high price and the market is collapsing out from under them. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. 
Now, maybe some of the people who got in got out quickly and took a loss, but I think a lot of smaller, inexperienced traders are still probably holding and hoping that the stock goes up. Meanwhile, there's still a lot of downside risk in these stocks. And of course, when this news came out about back at holdings, all the cryptos were way up because again, this is evidence that Bitcoin and other cryptos are going mainstream because see, it's getting into the MasterCard network. We're gonna be using Bitcoin just like we use dollars or euros. It's gonna be the new money and everyone's gonna get rich. This is all part of the hype. This is nonsense. I think a lot of the big Bitcoin whales are pushing these type of stories to come out, getting credit card companies excited about saying, hey, we want to integrate this in. They don't really understand Bitcoin or what it is, but they see all the money there and they want to see, okay, well, maybe we can put our foot in the door to get into it. But really, it's the whales that use these type of news announcements to generate some hype so they get more interest in buying Bitcoin so they can sell the Bitcoin that they own. You know, by the way, I didn't even realize this when I did Friday's podcast, but a second Bitcoin futures ETF was launched on Friday. That followed the one I did discuss that came out, I think, the day earlier, the ProShares Bitcoin Strategy ETF, BITO, B-I-T-O, This one is BTF. It's the Valkyrie Bitcoin strategy, also another futures-based ETF. So more and more ways where people can buy Bitcoin without actually buying it. Really, what these ETFs let you do is gamble on Bitcoin. And in a way, you can say maybe they divert demand away from actual Bitcoin because you could just gamble on Bitcoin instead of actually owning Bitcoin. In fact, I remember... Early on, one of the big criticisms that the Bitcoin people had about gold was that, well, you have all these futures contracts, and so that takes away demand from gold, or you have these other products, ETFs, or other ways that people can own gold, and it's siphoning away demand from the actual metal. But Bitcoin, there's only one way to buy it. You've got to buy actual Bitcoin, so you don't have to worry about demand being redirected to some derivative instruments where there can be a lot of manipulation and stuff like that. Of course, now the Bitcoin crowd is embracing all of the derivative type instruments and alternative ways that you can gamble on Bitcoin. They don't somehow see it as a negative the way they saw it as a negative for gold. They just see it as another positive. But again, everything's a positive when it comes to Bitcoin because it's all a bunch of hype. Everybody's got to get the price up because what nobody bothered to consider when they were thinking about this news story about Backit and its deal with MasterCard is that nobody actually wants to use Bitcoin as a payment method or a medium of exchange. Certainly, none of the merchants want to get paid in Bitcoin. Why would they want that hassle? Why would they want to have to deal with it? Because their rent is not in Bitcoin. Their employees' salary is not in Bitcoin. Their cost of goods, they don't need Bitcoin. They, they need Bitcoin like a hole in the head. They need cash. So even if they got paid in Bitcoin, they'd have to turn around and sell it. Well, now there's an added risk. I mean, you got plenty of risk as it is when you're running a business these days. Why do you want to risk that you get paid in Bitcoin and then before you get a chance to liquidate it, the Bitcoin drops and maybe a sale that you thought was done at a profit ends up being done at a loss. So the merchants don't want to get paid in Bitcoin. And they certainly don't want to price their products in Bitcoin because they'd have to be changing their prices every day. The currency is too volatile to actually set a price So if you're going to price your products in dollars or euros, then the easiest thing is to be paid in the currency that your products are priced in. So there really is no demand coming from merchants 
to get paid in Bitcoin. The irony, though, is that the people that own Bitcoin, they don't want to spend their Bitcoin either. They just want to hold it indefinitely. Right? Nobody who has a bunch of Bitcoin wants to use it to buy stuff because that means they're selling it. And if they wanted to sell their Bitcoin, well, they just sell it. So the fact that people aren't selling their Bitcoin means they don't want to spend it. So if somebody has the amount of Bitcoin that they want and then they want to buy something, they want to buy groceries or they want to buy some other products, they're not going to pay for those products with the Bitcoin that they're holding on to. They're going to pay using their dollars because their dollars are for spending. They want to spend their dollars. They don't want to spend their Bitcoin because they think the Bitcoin are going to keep going up in value. It's Gresham's law right? Bad money chases out good money. Now, I'm not saying Bitcoin is good money. It's not, but people think it's good money. And so if they're under the delusion that Bitcoin is good money, they don't want to spend it. They want to pass off the bad money. They want to use that money to buy stuff. So there's no demand at all on either side. The consumers don't want to use their Bitcoin to buy stuff and the merchants don't want to get paid in Bitcoin when they sell stuff. So there's nothing to this announcement. It's all pie in the sky hype to try to generate demand for Bitcoin as if somehow it's making inroads into payments, that it's going to be the new money. It's already the new gold. All this is a bunch of hype. But again, none of this matters in the speculative mania that we're in now in the era of cheap money and value doesn't matter. Price can go up indefinitely. This is what happens. And I think the cryptocurrencies themselves, they are the epitome of this. They are the poster boys and girls for this bubble because the crypto assets have absolutely no value whatsoever. Companies like Tesla, Tesla has some value. How much value? It's hard to say. There is definitely a business there. There are good products there. So Tesla has value. I think it's clear that the market price is well in excess of that value. But when it comes to Bitcoin or other cryptos, the value is zero. So any market price is excessive because there's no value at all to price. But in a mania like this, nobody cares. As a small business owner, you're always putting in the work to better yourself and your business. Why not put the same effort into your hiring process? Hiring better people means a better company and more profits for you. Indeed is your perfect hiring partner that gets you what you need when you need it. A short list of quality candidates as fast as possible because you can do it all with Indeed. Attract, interview, and hire in one place. So don't struggle on your own to find the quality candidates. Indeed can help you hire the right people right away. Indeed partners with you every step of the hiring process so you can find talent with the skills you need using the tools that Indeed provides like Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you'll get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description and you can invite them to apply right away. The perfect job candidate is out there. You just need to find him or her and Indeed makes the process that much simpler. You know, finding great talent doesn't have to be your second job. You can hire faster and better by using Indeed. And by using Indeed Instant Match, over 90% of employers get quality candidates as soon as they sponsor their job posts, according to Indeed data. In fact, candidates you invite to apply through Instant Match are three times more likely to apply to your job 
than those who only see it in search, according to the same Indeed data. So get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Peter. That's Indeed.com slash Peter. This offer is valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. If you're hiring, then you need Indeed. Now, one of the big Bitcoin pumpers was in the news recently. I'm talking about Jack Dorsey of Twitter and Square. He tweeted out, hyperinflation will change everything or something to that effect. It's a very simple tweet about hyperinflation. It's inevitable. It's coming. It's going to change everything. And it was immediately huge news, right? Everybody wanted to report this. I mean, I talk about hyperinflation potentially coming. I've never said it's going to happen for sure. I've always said that's the worst case scenario, but it certainly is a probable or possible rather scenario. I have no way of knowing the exact probability. I still think it is a worst case, not most likely scenario, but Dorsey seems to think that it's pretty much inevitable and it's going to happen. Now, a lot of his confidence in that statement may be a function of his ownership of Bitcoin, right? Because that's part of the Bitcoin pump, right? You need to own Bitcoin because we're going to have hyperinflation. Dollars are going to be worthless. Fiat currency is going to be worthless. And everybody is going to turn to uh, Bitcoin. I mean, even if that happens, if we do have hyperinflation, I don't think people are going to end up in Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin is going to be worthless too. I think when people really want to hedge inflation, they are going to buy a real asset a real commodity, something that has actual value that people need, that people use, and that has a price that will rise with the price of other goods that people need or commodities or assets. Nobody needs Bitcoin for anything. Bitcoin is simply a speculative token. Value is purely a function of confidence. And a lot of people say, well, no, that's the same thing with dollars or euros, right? It's all about confidence. Well, if people lose confidence in the dollar, it stands to reason that people can lose confidence in Bitcoin because it's just a confidence game. And if the dollar could crash, well, so could Bitcoin, right? Because that's what the Bitcoin guys say is, well, the dollar can work. And so if the dollar works without any intrinsic value, Bitcoin can work. Well, then if the dollar fails because it has no intrinsic value, why should Bitcoin succeed? What will succeed in that environment is something that really does have intrinsic value, and that would be gold and silver. But getting back to the Jack Dorsey comment, because there was all sorts of media coverage of the comment and talking about, hey, is it going to be possible? And I know most people are dismissing these warnings that there's no way this is going to happen. This is just Jack being controversial. He's just saying stuff. Maybe they're even acknowledging that he's promoting Bitcoin because everybody is pretty confident that the inflation that we're experiencing now, even though it's higher than the Fed had forecast or anybody in government, that they still believe those same forecasters that it's transitory and it's coming back down. In fact, Janet Yellen just said, I think in an interview or whatever it was, that she doesn't see any risk or any danger that the Federal Reserve might lose control over inflation. I mean, how could she say that? Well, obviously we know she's just lying, but clearly there is that risk. I mean, you could say, I don't think it's going to happen, but 
the Fed really has no ability to rein in inflation if it gets out of control. So this is just wishful thinking because think about all of the money that has already been printed over not only the last several years, but the last several decades, there's all this pent up inflationary pressures that are already in the economy and we're unleashing more and more of it. And the Fed really has no ability with rate hikes. I mean, unless you think that raising interest rates from zero to a half a percent is really enough firepower to do anything. I mean, to me, it seems ridiculous. If we end up having the most inflation we've had, probably even including the 1970s, how is the Fed going to fight it with a half a percent interest rates? I mean, if we had to take rates up to 20% to put out the fire in the 70s, if we get an even bigger fire now, I mean, might rates have to go to an even higher level than they did then? I mean, obviously, too, the higher rates would do even more damage to the economy. So they wouldn't even have to go up that high. But how is the Fed going to sit idly by and watch the entire house of cards that it spent the last couple of decades building completely implode? It's not going to do that. Janet Yellen knows it's not going to do that. So the only way that the Fed can contain inflation is just to hope that it never really becomes a problem. And that's basically what it's doing. It's pinning everything on hope thinking we've gotten away with it for all these years. We've printed all this money. We've done QE1, QE2, QE3. We're doing it again. And you know what? We haven't seen the big increase in consumer prices. So we're just going to assume that we got away with it before we'll get away with it again. But why would you assume that? Especially since we've upped the stakes so much. We're printing a lot more money now than we did back then. Plus, it's all cumulative, right? You can't keep doing it and doing it and doing it bigger and bigger and bigger and assume that because you didn't get into trouble earlier that you're never going to get into trouble. It's like taking a drug. Well, I've been taking it for so many years and nothing bad has happened, so I might as well up the dosage and I'll assume that nothing bad happens now because it didn't happen before. Well, That's a very risky way to run your monetary policy. But I think when you understand the dynamics that are at stake, maybe Yellen does, that's all you can do is just claim it's under control because you can never admit that it might not be because the mere admission that you may not have control of inflation in and of itself will let inflation run out of control. You have to maintain the illusion, the myth, right? The fear in the markets that the Fed could do something. Because if you admit to everybody that the Fed is impotent and can't do anything, then you're going to accelerate the process. You got to keep the markets on their toes. You got to keep people in the dollar. You got to keep people in bonds. You got to keep them complacent by reassuring them that you've got the situation under control, even if you don't. I mean, especially if you don't. The less control you have over inflation, the lower your ability is to actually control it the more you have to bluff that you can because that's all you've got. It's open mouth operations. That's your only policy. When you can only bark and you can't bite, you better bark awfully loud because that's all you've got. You better scare somebody off with your bark and you better hope that they don't test you if you've got no teeth. Another person that was making some good points, I was listening to this interview on CNBC with Stan Druckenmiller and he was saying a lot of good things about his concerns about the Fed and their excessive monetary policy and about the dollar losing its reserve currency status. But the reason I want to talk about Druckenmiller is not 
the things that he said that I agree with because he said a lot of things that I agree with. It's the one thing that he said that I don't agree with. And that's that he mentioned that the policy error that the Fed has made is keeping the emergency monetary policy in place too long, that the emergency is over and therefore the policy is no longer necessary. That when we had COVID, when the economy fell off the rail, it was appropriate for the Fed to print all this money and fund all these deficits to kind of support the economy during that emergency. But now that the emergency is over, that the economy has bounced back, thanks in large part to the Fed's help, now the Fed has to withdraw the emergency policy, take away the stimulus because the economy no longer needs it. And that is the policy mistake. They're keeping this easy money policy in place too long and they should have ended it sooner. And this is a common criticism. You'll find a lot of people that are going to say, yeah, the Fed did the right thing initially. They're just doing too much of a good thing. They just overstayed their welcome. That's not true. The Fed made a mistake from the beginning. The policy was a mistake from day one. It was never appropriate. It was the wrong thing to do. That's what nobody seems to understand. Even the Fed's critics refused to criticize the initial response to COVID. I criticized it in real time because the proper response was contracting the money supply. That's what they should have done when you have a weak economy, when you have a reduction of output, when you have fewer people working, you need to withdraw money from circulation, not flood the economy with more money, not print a bunch of money to increase demand as you're reducing supply because nobody is working. It was the exact wrong thing to do, but the Fed did the wrong thing because doing the right thing would have created a financial crisis. Because of the over-leveraged nature of the economy, thanks to the Fed getting everybody all levered up, if the Fed did the right thing, it would have been Armageddon, right? All hell would have broken loose. And so because of all of the monetary policy mistakes of the past that destroyed our savings and levered everybody up, nobody had any rainy day money to deal with COVID. And so we couldn't do the right thing in response to COVID. So instead, the Fed doubled up or tripled up on doing the wrong thing. But the reason the Fed has not withdrawn the emergency policy now that the so-called emergency is over is because it can't. Because the Fed's remedy was to just get the economy even more over leveraged, more debt, more money printing. So now they're in a box because the economy is addicted to the emergency stimulus. You can't take the stimulus away. Even though you think the emergency is gone, if you take the stimulus away, we're going to have an even worse emergency. Everything is going to implode. You see, you can't say, hey, the Fed did the right thing, giving everybody heroin. When they were in a bad mood, they were in the dumps, they were depressed. And so giving them some drugs to get everybody in a good mood, that was a good thing. The problem is they keep supplying the heroin. They need to take the heroin away now that everybody is high. Problem is, you can't take the heroin away because you now have an addiction and you only feel good because you keep taking heroin. You can't take that heroin away and now the person's going to go through withdrawal. We would have complete monetary withdrawal if the Fed took away the stimulus now. That's what guys like Stan Druckenmiller 
still can't seem to understand that the Federal Reserve created this problem and now it's doing everything it can from preventing that problem from blowing up because the Fed's emergency policies made the underlying economic problems worse. We should have allowed the market to restructure the economy in the COVID downturn, but we couldn't because we made the mistake of not allowing the market to restructure the economy after the housing bubble burst. And the reason we even had that bad decision to make was because we refused to allow the market to restructure the economy after the dot-com bubble burst. Every time we have a bubble that pops, the Fed does the wrong thing because it doesn't want to allow the market to run its course. So it short circuits the economic healing process, right? The recession is actually a cleansing process that allows the malinvestments to be liquidated, savings to be restored, capital investment to return. You get rid of all the mistakes, solve all the problems that were created during the bubble, and you lay the foundation for a real economic recovery. But we never do that. We sidestep all that because of the political problems associated with having to deal with those past mistakes. So we sweep them under the rug so we can make even bigger mistakes. And so every time the Fed does the wrong thing, the cost of doing the right thing gets higher and higher and higher. And the Fed never wants to pay it. And that's exactly where we are. And so people that criticize the Fed for keeping the easy money policies in place too long, they don't actually understand the mistakes of using those policies at all in the first place. I remember the way they used to describe QE. A lot of people said it was like training wheels, right? We needed to put these training wheels on the bike just so the bike can go. And then when the bike no longer needs training wheels, we can take them off, right? It's just a temporary thing. My point was that QE wasn't training wheels. We got rid of the real wheels and replaced them with QE. That the only thing that was supporting the bike were those QE wheels. We were riding on wheels of quantitative easing. And if you took the wheels off, there's nothing left. The bike falls. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right. So that's why they left the wheels on. But then I kept saying, but eventually, if you leave those wheels on the bike, the bike's going to go over a cliff. But nobody cares because they don't know how far away that cliff is. And all they do is hope that they won't be in office when the bike goes over the cliff. Well, you know, now it's a lot closer to that cliff. And as long as people don't understand the damage that the Fed does, you can't applaud the Fed. You can't say, yes, the Fed did the right thing. The Fed saved the economy. They did the wrong thing. The economy didn't need saving, right? The economy needed to adjust. The economy needed to restructure. As painful as that restructuring process may have been, that's exactly what it needed. The Federal Reserve prevented the economy from getting better by shooting it up with more drugs instead. And again, had they done the right thing after the housing bubble, it wouldn't have been as bad waiting until COVID. And had they done the right thing after the dot-com bubble, it wouldn't have been as bad as had they done it after the housing bubble. But again, if they're not going to deal with the problems when they're smaller, 
How do we expect them to deal with them when they're bigger? Which is why they're not going to deal with them, which is why hyperinflation, what Jack Dorsey was talking about, is a real possibility. Because if we keep doing what we've been doing, then we will get hyperinflation. What has to happen to avert hyperinflation is a huge change in policy. Now, it's my thought process that when we get to that point, where the stakes are that high that cooler heads will prevail and will avoid hyperinflation. But there is no guarantee because other nations have had hyperinflation. Nobody plans for it. Nobody wants it. Everybody hopes it's not going to happen. And so that's why it might happen because we might push the envelope that far. We may be so complacent that the risk isn't there. And because we've gotten away with it so many times in the past, We'll just have the hubris to believe that we'll get away with it indefinitely. And that's why you plan for the worst and you hope for the best. Maybe there will be hyperinflation. And if there is, my investment strategy is going to do extremely well because I own a lot of real assets. I own dividend-paying foreign stocks. I have a lot of exposure to commodities, to emerging markets. These are the types of investments that will do well if the U.S. and some of the major economies go through that type of inflationary period. But you also want to hold gold and silver. That's your dry powder. That's your safe haven. Not these cryptocurrencies. People who are betting that cryptocurrencies are going to do well in high inflation have no historical precedent on which to base that. The big move up for crypto is during the bubble. It's when everybody is speculating. Cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin correlated with risk assets, not inflation hedges, not stores of value. You can't store what you don't have. And as much as people who own Bitcoin want to pretend it has value, it has none. It has a price because people think it has value and they only think it has value because the price is going up. And all of the arguments surrounding Bitcoin always point to the price. Look how much money you would have made had you only bought Bitcoin 10 years ago. Yes, that's true. But Bitcoin only went up in value because other people bought it, not because of any underlying utility of the currency itself or some intrinsic value. It simply went up because people bought it and it will keep going up until people stop buying it and then the price will implode. And what are the catalysts for that implosion could be a big pickup in inflation that really causes gold and silver and other actual inflation hedges to rise, pricking the Bitcoin bubble. I want to finish up, though, talking a little bit about the Democrats' latest efforts to tax the billionaires, because a lot of their tax hikes seem to have lost their appeal among some of the Democrats in the Senate. I mentioned uh, that on the last podcast, but now they've come up with a new twist on the wealth tax, one that supposedly is just going to hit America's billionaires, because it only applies to people who have a billion-dollar net worth or who have earned more than $100 million in each of the last three years. And what the Democrats are proposing is to tax the unrealized appreciation of certain assets owned by billionaires. And I think it's limited to liquid assets like publicly traded stocks or bonds or stuff like that. So if you're a billionaire, like Elon Musk, and the value of your Tesla stock goes way up during a given year, even if you don't sell any of your shares, the government wants to mark to market those unrealized gains 
and then tax you as if those unrealized gains were income because they want to do it as part of the income tax. So they want to redefine income to also mean the appreciated value of assets, even though the appreciation is unrealized. Now, this is completely unconstitutional, and nobody is really talking about why it's unconstitutional because so few people out there even understand the Constitution, especially members of Congress who ironically swear an oath to support it. Well, clearly, anybody who supports this type of tax is violating that oath. The income tax is imposed pursuant to the 16th Amendment. Now, my father argued that the income tax was being imposed in violation of the 16th Amendment because based on my father's research, the 16th Amendment did not change the Constitution. It simply redefined income taxes and moved them from the category of direct taxes into the category of indirect taxes. And so it didn't give the government any new taxing powers. It just told the government that it needed to tax income as an indirect tax, which is why income ended up being defined in the courts as a corporate profit because they had to tax income separate from its source in order for it to qualify as an indirect tax rather than a direct tax. Because if you taxed, let's say, rents, the Supreme Court said in Pollock that a tax on rents is tantamount to a tax on real estate and the government can't tax real estate unless they apportion it. And so if they can't tax real estate, they can't tax rents. And Bershaber basically said, hey, we're not going to overturn anything in Pollock. So if the government wants to tax income, it needs to do it as an indirect tax. So it needs to separate rental income or any other income from the source that generated it by like running it through a P&L and then tax the profit. And so the court said that the income tax is a profits tax and a tax on profits is an indirect tax. So th this is basically one of my dad's arguments. Forget about that argument because the courts are not going to accept that argument. It's pretty much well settled at this point. Everybody believes that the 16th Amendment changed the Constitution and authorized a direct tax on income. So forget about my father's perspective or whether or not he's correct. Let's just accept for the purpose of this discussion and the future challenge on this law if it actually passes. But let's accept the premise that the 16th Amendment did give the U.S. government a new taxing power and it allows the direct tax on incomes and it is exempt from the apportionment provisions of the Constitution. Now, I've talked about that on this podcast. In fact, the need to apportion direct taxes is the only thing that's in the Constitution twice. So if the Founding Fathers wanted to repeat themselves about the need to apportion direct taxes, they really felt strongly that direct taxes had to be apportioned. And this was an important thing for states' rights because the apportionment provision basically means that poorer states can impose taxes or vote to impose taxes on richer states that they escape paying. The apportionment provision makes sure that everybody pays the tax. I've explained it, but I'll go over it again real quickly. The way you apportion a direct tax is the government first has to decide how much money it wants to raise, right? Let's say the government wants to raise a trillion dollars and then it wants to impose a wealth tax. Well, it has to decide 
based on the population, well, if California is 10% of the population, it's going to pay 10% of the wealth tax. Then you have a smaller state that may be 3% of the population. It's going to pay 3% of the wealth tax. The problem is, what if that smaller state doesn't have a lot of wealth? There's not a lot of rich people in that smaller state. In order for that state to come up with its quota, the wealth tax in that state is going to have to be much higher than the wealth tax in a state that has a lot of wealthy people. And so for that reason, the states that don't have a lot of wealthy people would never support the wealth tax because it would be such a huge burden on their population. And in fact, in order to collect the tax, the bar on how wealthy you have to be would probably be set pretty low and a lot of people would get ensnared in it. So the government doesn't want to impose a direct tax based on the apportionment, which is why we really didn't have any direct taxes until the income tax. And then we amended the constitution But you have to remember, the reason we amended the Constitution, the government told the people that if we have this tax on the rich, we're going to soak the rich with the income tax. It's only going to affect the billionaires, although they weren't billionaires back then, but they were billionaires adjusted for inflation. But it was the super rich, the 1%, who were going to pay this income tax. And that meant the ordinary guy would get a tax cut. We were going to get rid of the tariffs that fell on the average working man, and we were going to replace it with this income tax. And when the Supreme Court in the Pollock case originally declared the income tax unconstitutional, the press vilified the Supreme Court as defenders of the rich. The principle that wasn't important wasn't to protect the rich. It was to protect everybody from the government. Because once the government was able to amend the Constitution to go after the rich, who did they go after next? the middle class. In fact, average Americans, working middle-class Americans today pay income tax rates far higher than the ones that were envisioned for the Carnegie's and the Rockefeller's and the Vanderbilt's. So the middle class has been ensnared in their own trap. I always say, beware of the government bait and switch. Do not get into bed with the government. It's the same old, same old. They promise that some new tax is there to punish the rich, but once they get their foot in the door, then they quickly make a beeline for the middle class. So it's not that the Supreme Court was defending the rich. They were defending everybody. They were defending the Constitution. But of course, the press had a field day with it. And that was one of the reasons that they were able to get the courts to kind of change and ultimately get behind the tax after the 16th Amendment was passed. And in fact, that's the only reason that the states were willing to ratify the 16th Amendment, because it was a populist movement to soak the rich. And of course, it's the middle class that ended up drowning in the tax. The same thing is going to happen now, because people want the government to tax the unrealized gains of billionaires, because we want to make the billionaires pay their fair share. And I pointed out on Twitter that this is unconstitutional. And I noticed that people were criticizing me because, hey, you're just defending the rich. You're standing up for the billionaires. I'm not standing up for the billionaires. I'm standing up for the Constitution and I'm standing up for middle-class Americans because if we let the government get away with this, they're not going to stop at billionaires. It's going to be just like the income tax. First, it's billionaires. And the next thing you know, average Americans are being taxed every year on the unrealized gains or appreciation in their primary residence, their home. I mean, once the government gets this power, right, once that camel's nose is under the tent, it's all the way in. 
It's not going to stay with the billionaires. And let me get back to the point about why this is unconstitutional. So the 16th Amendment gave Congress the power to levy a direct tax on income. So income taxes are the only direct taxes that don't have to be apportioned. If there's another type of direct tax, then it is still subject to the rule of apportionment. Now, if Congress wants to tax the unrealized appreciation of an asset, that's not income. That's property, right? That's a property tax, and you're taxing the property based on its value or based on its appreciation, but property taxes are direct taxes. And there is no amendment to the Constitution that says that governments can lay taxes on property or wealth, whatever you want to call it, without regard to apportionment. So if Congress wants to levy this tax, it has to do exactly what the government did back in 1913. They need to propose a constitutional amendment that authorizes a direct tax on property without regard to apportionment. And if they get that amendment passed, then I guess they could do it. But they can't simply redefine income. Congress cannot change the Constitution by changing definitions. Otherwise, the Constitution is meaningless. You can't amend the Constitution with legislation. So the government can't define something that is not income and say this is income and now we're going to tax it because if that's the case, they can say anything they want is income and tax it. They can't. The definition of income is established legally by the courts, ultimately by the Supreme Court, because it has to do with Congress's taxing authority. Congress cannot define income. In fact, that's why the word income is not even defined in the Internal Revenue Code, because Congress doesn't have the ability to define it. Now, they define gross income. If you go to Code Section 61, it defines gross income, but nowhere in the Internal Revenue Code is the word income defined. I mean, some people say we define income with gross income, but you can't define a word using the word in the definition that you're trying to define. So you have to look to the Supreme Court to know what income is, and it would be up to the Supreme Court to decide whether unrealized capital gains constitute income. But there is no court decision in history that has ever declared that unrealized capital gains constitute income. In fact, if you look at every court definition of income, it specifically would include unrealized appreciation. It's not income until you generate some cash. You have to sell the asset to know whether you have any income because you have to compare the money that you got from selling the asset with the money you paid to acquire it. If you're still holding the asset, you have no income. Unrealized appreciation does not qualify. Now, the irony of the whole thing and all these Democrats that are upset that all these billionaires never sell their stocks and that they can borrow against their stocks instead. Why is this happening? It's because of the Fed. Interest rates are so low, stock prices keep going up, and so these billionaires can borrow money against the appreciating value of their stocks. Their interest rates are super low. The stocks keep going up. It's free money. If you really want to put an end to that, we need to put an end to the Federal Reserve. Let interest rates go up. Let stock prices come down. Then these billionaires will be forced to actually sell their stocks to support their lifestyles. They won't be able to live off of all the cheap money supplied by the Fed. And so the economy wins because we have sound money. We don't have all these bubbles. And now the government might actually collect some more income taxes 
from the billionaires because they'll be forced to actually generate income instead of living off debt. But because the Fed is keeping this massive bubble going and part of the problem is the huge deficits that are being run by the government, the Federal Reserve has helped the government run up such an enormous debt that the only way that they can service the debt is to keep interest rates really low. Well, the U.S. government isn't the only one that benefits from 0% interest rates. The billionaires are benefiting from it too. They own real assets that are appreciating and now they can borrow at these artificially low interest rates and never have to sell their stocks. So if we go back to sound money, if Congress would act responsibly, then the billionaires wouldn't be able to get away with this. Their stocks would not be this inflated. And if they needed money, they wouldn't be able to borrow it super cheap. So they would actually end up selling shares and generating taxable income. So that is the real solution. It's not two wrongs make a right. It's not because we so screwed up the economy with cheap money that now we have to violate the Constitution by redefining income in a way to actually usurp broad taxing power that does not exist in the Constitution. But if the government gets away with it, and if for some reason the courts ratify it, we are in for a world of hurt because this is going to deliver tremendous new taxing power to the federal government. Because once the federal government can tax property without apportionment, it's not going to not do it. It's going to start doing it. It's going to introduce all sorts of unapportioned direct taxes that are going to fall principally on the middle class the same way the income tax now falls on the middle class. The politicians are upset that the billionaires are avoiding the income tax. The income tax was specifically designed to hit the billionaires. Oh my God. And they're not paying it. They're able to avoid it. Imagine that. A government program backfired. They were aiming at the billionaires and instead they hit the middle class. Well, what makes you think their aim is going to be any better this time around? 